So, uh, this morning, um, I was given the topic of talking about who is my neighbor. And a um, couple of things by way of introduction. Firstly, uh, when I arrived this morning, Pete said to me, you're going to have a short sermon, aren't you? Uh, it's going to be a short preach this morning. That's not exactly what he said. Um, but I did promise I wouldn't speak for too long, so I'm going to try and keep it relatively short. Um, uh, when Katrina got up and, and shared those verses from Isaiah 58, that's just a fantastic picture, isn't it, of, of God's heart for the poor, for the hungry, for the oppressed. I mean, the gospel is for everybody, right? But God has a special heart for, for the poor and the oppressed. And I, I think that's part of the answer to this question, who is my neighbor? The other thing is, I don't know about you, but the older I get, honestly, the more challenging I find it being a Christian. Um, and it should be the other way around because, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. And um, you know what it's like when, when you first have Jesus in your life and you're on fire for God and you want to change the world and you want to revolutionize everything. And I, I think I was like that. I, I honestly don't think that I was kind of complacent when, when I was a new Christian. But the, the older I get, the more challenging I find it because God wants to do things in our lives and he wants to change us. And there are bits of my life that, that God is definitely working on, definitely working on. And so when, when Jesus had his, his ministry, his, his few years of, of ministry, he was in constant conflict with people around him. All of the time, he was in conflict with them. And I must admit, I, I'm kind of conflict-averse. I try and keep the peace wherever I can, probably far too much. But what we're going to talk about this morning is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is one of those occasions when Jesus was in conflict. Just one of the occasions. And uh, it was an expert in the law, a, a lawyer, a scribe, who wanted to challenge Jesus on this occasion, wanted to vindicate his own particular uh, lifestyle and beliefs, perhaps. So this is a parable that, that only occurs in Luke, um, none of the other Gospels. And there isn't really any, much of any context to this. It, it, it kind of comes without an awful lot of context. But this is in Luke chapter 10, so we'll just read it through quickly. So, just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to, to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who had stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, he said? The one who showed mercy. He said, and Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. It's a really, really familiar parable. We all know this so well. But there, there are things here that, you know, when, when you look at it and you look at it afresh, God wants to, I think, speak to all of us. <coughs> We don't know, but presumably this was another occasion when Jesus was sitting around or standing around with a group of people and was talking to them, teaching them, engaging with them, whatever. And amongst them was this lawyer, amongst them this expert in the law, a scribe. Perhaps he'd been really quiet, perhaps he'd been just standing at the back, not saying anything, just listening in to what was going on. And then suddenly he pipes up with this question and he says, Jesus, teacher, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he so often does, rather than simply answering that question, he asks him another one. wants to find out a little bit about the motivations and the heart of this person. So he asked this lawyer, tell me, what does, what does the law say? And so the lawyer answers, and he answers quoting verses from both Deuteronomy and Leviticus, quoting part of the law in the Old Testament. And the Jews apparently did try to rank the different laws. You know, there's 613 odd different laws in, in the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Jews did try to rank those laws in order of importance. And the one that everybody agreed on was that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. Pretty much everybody agreed that was the most important commandment. But apparently there, there was some disagreement about what the second most important commandment was. And there were two big kind of schools of thought. One of them was that the second most important commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. But other people, other leading Jews thought that the second most important commandment was to be holy as I am holy. And so there were these two big schools of thought. And Jesus is kind of saying to, to this lawyer, well, where do you come down in this argument? What, what do you think is the most important? And so he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, 
and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's where this particular lawyer came down. That was his interpretation. And Jesus says to him, yeah, you're right, you're right. Do that and you'll have eternal life. You've got it, you understand. You understand where the heart of God is for us. But the lawyer wanted more. The lawyer presumably wanted to justify his own interpretation of what a neighbor is. So he wanted to justify himself and he said, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And I guess we all have some idea of what we mean by neighbor. For most of us, if, if somebody said to you, who's your neighbor? Well, we'd say, well, you know, I've got these two houses on either side of me and I've got a few houses across the road. And that's our neighborhood, right? That's what we think about when we think about neighbor, the immediate people who live around us. For the Jews at the time, what they would have commonly understood as their neighbor would have been the Jews in the same tribe as them. So that was their neighbor. That was their common definition of neighbor. Jews that were in the same tribe as them. And it may have extended a little bit more sometimes. Neighbor might have extended to include other Jews as well. But it wouldn't have gone much beyond that. So it was a pretty safe place. It was people that looked like them. It was people that talked like them. It was people that had the same sort of values as them. Safety. But in answer to that question, Jesus then tells this parable. And rather than define a neighbor as a noun, a type of person, Jesus looks at what it is to be neighborly. Not defined by a label, but by action. And so Jesus talks about this man that was on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Don't know who he was, don't even know who, what nationality this man was. We know nothing about him, just that he was traveling on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles long. Jerusalem was quite high on a mountain, Jericho, very low down. The difference in height between the two of them was about 3,500 feet, 3,500 feet. That's a little bit higher than Scarfell Pike, the highest mountain in England. But for those of you that haven't climbed Scarfell Pike, which includes me, um, to put it in local context, so Shaftesbury is about 500 feet higher than Gillingham. And it's about five or six miles away, right? So we're talking about a distance about three times, a little bit more than three times the distance, Shaftesbury to Gillingham, and five times the height. You know, the, Jerusalem was five times higher than, Gillingham, than Shaftesbury is compared to Gillingham. So this is a 17-mile, twisty, windy road that descends quite steeply. And it was notorious in those days for being a dangerous road notorious for being a dangerous road. And this man, traveling down this road, gets attacked by robbers. Stripped of his clothes, he's beaten, he's left half dead on the side of the road. No way for anybody to know who he was. His clothes have gone, nothing to identify him. And then Jesus says that there's a priest and then a Levite 
that walked past. He says they were going down the road. So presumably they were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. A lot of priests used to live in Jericho, apparently. And they would spend often a period of two weeks in Jerusalem serving in the temple. And then they'd go back down to Jericho, back down to their home. So probably this priest had been serving for a couple of weeks in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was coming back down the road, back home to Jericho. And he sees the man and he passes by on the other side. Probably the biggest motivation for him to pass by on the other side was that he looked at him, saw that he was bleeding, saw that he was half dead, probably very close to death. If he had got off his horse, if he had touched the man and ministered to the man, that would have made him impure. He would have had to have gone back to Jerusalem and gone through the rituals to make himself pure again. So probably his biggest motivation was that he thought this man was perhaps dead already or very close to death. If he got off his horse and helped him, he would have been impure, had to go through a lot of rituals, etc. So he had a choice between making himself impure or helping that man. He ranked keeping himself pure, keeping himself holy as the more important thing. And the Levite came down and did exactly the same thing, passed by on the other side. The Levites were helpers to the priests in the temple. So maybe this Levite actually knew the priests that already passed by. Probably thought the same thing. If he helped this man, that was going to make him impure. Maybe even there was peer pressure there. He knew that the priest had passed by earlier on, and he didn't want to kind of do anything contradictory to what his priest had done. So he just passed by on the other side. We don't know the motivations, but you know those are possibilities. And the people that were listening to Jesus telling this story, they, they would have been expecting there to be a hero at this point, right? So we've got two people that have just passed by on the other side. This man is lying half dead in the road. And they're expecting there to be a hero. Maybe just an ordinary Jew, just an ordinary man was going to be the hero of this story. But the kicker is that, that Jesus then says a Samaritan comes down. And a Samaritan was a group of people that the Jews just had complete hatred for. They were a half-breed. They were considered a really low class of people. They'd intermarried with non-Jews. They weren't keeping the law properly, at least as far as the Jews were concerned. The Jews had nothing but contempt for them. They wanted nothing to do with Samaritans whatsoever. They were outcasts. They were despised by the Jews. And those listeners to Jesus, they would have been shocked, absolutely shocked, that Jesus says now, a Samaritan comes down the road. And the Samaritan turns out to be the hero of the story. We don't know if the injured man was Jew or Gentile but it made no difference to the Samaritan. He didn't consider 
what the race or the religion of that man was. Jesus said the Samaritan came close to the man. He wanted to see what was going on, to know what was going on. And Jesus said he was moved with pity. And the Greek word here literally means compassion from your bowels, from the very depths of your soul. He was moved from the depths of his soul with pity for this person. So filled with compassion that he was compelled to act on it. Compelled to act on it. He touched the man. He cleaned the wounds. He poured oil and wine onto the wounds. He bandaged the wounds. He put the man on his own animal, his own donkey or horse, and led him to the inn. The Samaritan took on the role of a slave, leading the donkey or horse with the injured man on it. Samaritan took him to the inn. He spent the night there in the inn with the man. The next day, he gave money to the innkeeper, the equivalent of two days' wages, so not a small amount of money. Substantial amount of money, and he promised to come back again and pay anything further that was needed. It's hard, I think, for us to understand the impact of that to, to the listeners. Samaritan took a huge risk in treating the man because the Samaritans were treated with such contempt. He wouldn't have known whether the innkeeper would have welcomed him or not. Wouldn't have known whether the injured man would have been grateful or not. In our terms, to try and put it into some sort of context for, for today, you know, could you imagine Jesus sitting down, talking with a group of black people, and he talks to them about this man that was walking to his home in Brixton from the station, and he gets robbed and beaten up, and he's left bleeding and dying in the gutter. And an Anglican priest hurries past on the other side of the road. And then uh, somebody from the Baptist church, maybe a deacon from the Baptist church, passes by and looks and just passes by on the other side of the road. And then this uh, man carrying a whole bunch of tattoos, skinhead from the British National Party, comes down the road, sees him, and has compassion on him, cleans him, takes him to the local pub, stays with him. That's the sort of culture shock that the people would have felt when Jesus was telling this story. The most unlikely, the least likely person, the person that you really don't want to be the hero ends up being the one that has compassion, compassion that leads to action. And so Jesus then asks that lawyer, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? Again, not a label, not classifying a, a neighbor according to where you live, but who was a neighbor to this man? 
And of course, he couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just had to say the man who showed compassion. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And this is a, a parable that is so familiar to us. Uh, and it's repeated. The message is repeated time and time and time again in Scripture in so many different ways. It shows us about the heart that God has for us. We're expected to love our enemies. We're expected to have faith that results in action. Faith without action is no faith at all. In Matthew, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Throughout Scripture, time and time again, it's about reaching out, reaching out to the unloved, reaching out to the oppressed, reaching out to the, to the poor, reaching out to those that are hungry. Even right back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Now go back and read the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Rhetorical question. Yeah, you are your brother's keeper. Just like Cain, who tried to limit his offering to God to something that was just about good enough, this lawyer was trying to limit the reach of what it meant to be a neighbor, to do just enough. And God says, just enough is not good. Just enough is not good enough. That's not where my heart is. My heart is overflowing with love. My heart is overflowing with compassion. Compassion that leads to sympathy but no action is lukewarm love. And that is not what our Father is about. And I was thinking about this, and I was trying to think, you know, where, what does it mean for me now? Um, what does it mean for each one of us? And, you know, we, we might think, well, we don't have that many enemies when it comes to loving enemies. But maybe it's just me. Maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I was thinking about my work situation. And, you know, I have to confess that there are one or two people that I work alongside on a daily basis that kind of wind me up a little bit. And maybe it's just me. Maybe you don't have this problem. But, you know, they, they wind me up in different ways. And what I end up doing is kind of withdrawing from them a little bit. I don't engage with them too much. You know, somebody that's hurt you, 
Somebody that has values that are so different to your values. Somebody who's openly antagonistic to religion and Christianity. And the easiest thing is just to withdraw a little bit, just not to engage too much, just to stand by, to walk past on the other side of the road. And this is where it gets dirty and messy because it can be challenging, it can be difficult, and it can leave us vulnerable. It can leave us vulnerable. Just like the Samaritan. So instead of trying to avoid the person, instead of trying to avoid getting into conversation with them or conflict with them, maybe I need to be praying that God will bless them that God will give me an opportunity to show God's love to them. Because if I ask God to do that, I'm sure he will make opportunities. Can we commit to love those people that we don't get on with well? Can we commit to love them with a a transforming love that means we go beyond sympathy into action. Can we let God's radical grace change us and produce in us a desire to be generous, compassionate, and have that insane ability to forgive that Jesus has? I was going to talk a little bit about um, what it means for us as a church as well, but I don't have time and I couldn't do it justice. Um, maybe we'll talk about that another time. But the other thing briefly just to notice about this parable is that not only is Jesus telling us that we need to be like that Samaritan, to recognize who our neighbor is and to move from just sympathy into compassion that has action with it. The other thing about the parable is that you can look at it at two different levels. We're supposed to be like the Samaritan, but also the Samaritan is a perfect picture of Jesus. We are that man that was beaten up, left for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus, the least likely person, comes along and tends to our wounds, pours oil and wine on our wounds, bandages us, puts us on a donkey, takes us to a place of safety, pays for us to be healed, and says, I'm going to come back as well. I'm going to come back, and if there's anything more that needs sorting out, I'm going to sort it out. Wonderful picture of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. 
the gospel of Jesus. Jesus has shown us what it means to live a life filled with compassion and love and to meet the needs of those around. And he says to us, go and do likewise. Amen.